chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Where once again we have a wonderful and refreshing opportunity to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and to see what the Spirit of God has for us. And this morning we find ourselves in verses 22 through 32. Follow along as I read the text. Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebul cast out, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Dear friends, no sin stirred the Lord Jesus Christ to anger like the sin of hypocrisy. Those who wear an external veneer of spirituality, but inwardly really have no genuine love for Christ. Throughout the Bible, we see that they are described as those who are willfully blind, foolish, self-righteous, covetous, ostentatious, loving preeminence, censorious. In other words, they see the speck in their brother's eye, but they don't see the log in their own. The Bible says they regard tradition more than the word of God. They are obsessed with non-essentials, yet they neglect the important duties. They have a form of godliness. They seek only outward purity. They are professing but not practicing true spirituality. They seek glory from men. They appear to be zealous in their love for God. And they are even zealous in making proselytes, yet they devour widows' houses. And on it goes. Examples in the Bible would be people such as Cain and Absalom, the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, the Sadducees, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon the Magician, false teachers, and on it goes. They exist today. We see them all around us. Hypocrites, those who claim some spiritual 
prowess, but in reality, again, they know nothing of the gospel and therefore they deny Christ and the authority of Scripture. They have titles such as rabbi, ayatollahs, clerics, priests, cardinals, archbishops, popes. They are religious pretenders, constantly pontificating on matters of religion. We see them also in evangelical circles, predators that are in the pulpits, those who claim certain supernatural powers and certain special revelations from God. Jude describes them as ungodly persons that creep into the church unaware. And they care only for themselves. In fact, in Jude, verse 16, he says these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. The word of God goes on to tell us that these hypocrites and false teachers will be filled with pride. They'll have a lust for power, a lust for money, and they will be immoral. They are miserable pretenders, according to Scripture. God says that he abhors them, that in fact they are a stench unto his nostrils. And along with all of this, I might add that there is one common characteristic of hypocrisy that is underscored in today's text. And that is that these people resent truth and they will do anything and everything to keep other people from embracing truth. For example, the Pharisees stubbornly refused to examine their own hearts, to confess their own sin, to acknowledge the miracles of Jesus as even being from God. They refused to admit the irrefutable signs of his Messiahship, that they were consistent with the prophecies of the Old Testament. They refused to acknowledge any of that. They even attributed the, the magnificent miracles of Jesus as being empowered not by the Holy Spirit, but by Satan. Hypocrites both then and now are consumed with denying the truth and distorting the truth, and they will do whatever it takes to assassinate the character of anyone who proclaims it, and they will manipulate others from bowing before it. There's a constant battle both outside the church and even inside the true church to protect us from gadflies like Flies that bite and annoy animals and sometimes us. These are hypocrites that persistently annoy other Christians, promote, provoke others with criticism and have schemes and demands that they that they put upon others within the church with beams as large as oak trees protruding from each eye. They are quite certain that they can see the speck in everyone else's eye. Their conscience seems to yawn in boredom when the law of God is thundered, while the humble, those who truly know Christ, tremble before the law and their hearts will melt like wax before the fire of truth. Well, in today's text, we have a classic illustration of hypocrisy in action. And we are going to discover this morning some very practical tactics of a hypocrite as well as God's response to these tactics. And to help you understand the text that we have before us, I've outlined it with five very simple observation, observations, each according to the drama that unfolds in the text that we have before us. 
There are two observations relating to the methods of hypocrisy and then three relating to God's response. Let me give them to you. First, we see the hypocrites are desperate to control. And secondly, we will see their diabolical distortion. And then we will see three things relating to God's response. We will see his devastating rebuttal, his damning accusation and his divine verdict. First of all, desperate control. This is part of the way hypocrites will function. They must control the masses. Notice in verse 22. Then there was brought to him, referring to Jesus, a demon possessed man who was blind and dumb. And he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw and all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, the masses were beginning to seriously consider the Lord's claim that indeed he was the Messiah. Now, this poses a serious problem for the hypocrite, for the religious leaders. You see, you must understand, since hypocrites live for man's approval, they must do whatever is necessary to keep up their image. And Jesus was a huge threat to them right now. They were a threat to the scribes and to the Pharisees who were the quintessential control freaks, as well as many other Jews. Because imagine it now, the crowds are beginning to follow Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah. And they saw that he had authority over sin and authority over disease and authority over demons and even nature. And Jesus had already embarrassed them with his infinitely superior and omniscient intellect effectively ensnaring them in theological traps that they had, in fact, laid for him. And he had publicly and rightly accused them of every imaginable form of wickedness and had just literally left them speechless before him. So now they were enraged. They had been exposed. They were losing control of the people. So something had to be done. So the Pharisees... And the scribes, who were, by the way, the religious lawyers of the day, they are they are dogging Jesus, if I can use that term. They're following him, trying to find some way to discredit him. And there are thousands of people swarming around him. And now suddenly a demon man, a demon possessed man that, that is blind and unable to speak is suddenly publicly, miraculously healed. Imagine the scene. The people are absolutely flabbergasted, the text tells us. It uses the word amazed, and it means in the original language to be absolutely beside yourself with astonishment. It means to be awestruck, to, if I can put it in our vernacular, to be blown away to the point of being frightened. Again, imagine the scene. A demon-possessed man had come into their presence. Now, folks, you must understand, this would be a horrifying spectacle. Because a demon-possessed man would be a horrifying creature, considered by the people to be inhuman, the embodiment of wickedness, a man that is unclean, that you must stay away from. Everyone avoided this man. They were in that day filthy people. They were wild and crazy and terrifying. And on top of it, this man could not see and he could not speak. And Jesus, in his infinite grace and mercy, expels this demon. 
Now, none of the Gospels describe what that really looked like, but there is an indication that something remarkable happened when that occurred. And as a result, this demon-possessed man now is suddenly coherent. He's suddenly rational. He can see and he can speak and all of the people see it. And they are overwhelmed with awe. Awestruck. The crowd must have gasped. I bet you could have heard a pin drop. And certainly they had the proper response. They said, could this be the son of David? Well, perhaps a good parallel in our modern culture as to the power and the illustration, shall we say, of damage control can be seen in some of the courtroom dramas that we have in our day. In order to help you understand this, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Certainly, if any of you have seen television, you've watched the Michael Jackson circus. And anyone that is honest, that has an ounce of morality, can see through his veneer. And yet notice the parallel. He must and his group of people must do everything they can to project a persona of innocence, to influence the masses. Hypocrites must always do that. Deceivers must always control the masses. And so they control the media with special appearances, with well-choreographed public appearances, complete with limos and white suits and armbands and umbrellas and dancing on top of a limo and, and sunglasses and an entourage wearing similar types of things, bodyguards, family members, all projecting an image of a beleaguered a victim that has been falsely accused, all an effort to somehow manipulate the masses, well-scripted sound bites, video clips that somehow would would indicate his innocence and so on. You also see the same type of thing in politics. You see that it's crucial for politicians to manipulate the masses to gain power over them. And so they are constantly having opinion surveys to determine which way the political stream is flowing so that they can put their boat in it. Endless polling, focus groups, all of these things are crucial in determining how to shape your message so that somehow you can put it on bumper stickers and have sound bites. Once again, all to manipulate and control the masses. Truth and genuine service is not really uh, relevant here. Popularity is all that matters. Things such as is, is honesty and integrity and humility and kindness are replaced with pride and deception and even vitriolic hatred. So you must vilify your opponent with clever spin and exalt yourself to control the minds of the people who keep you in power. And you certainly must remember that hypocrisy can never exist in isolation. No, no. Hypocrisy craves an audience. It demands attention. And so this is the modus operandi of the hypocrite. And it's exactly what we see with the religious phonies in Jesus' day. So, back to the story. Immediately when the Pharisees saw that they were losing control, when they saw that their naive fan club were all of a sudden beginning to maybe lean towards Jesus, they had to fly into action to turn the tide back in their favor. And so we move from desperate control to an observation of diabolical distortion. Look at verse 24. 
When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Oh, here we go with the distortion, with the spin, as we would call it. You must understand that Beelzebul could be translated Baal the prince. He was Lord of the flies in the Old Testament. The Jews understood that this was the chief god of the Philistines, especially in the city of Ekron. And that city and this god was notorious for satanic idolatry. And so this name later became used to describe Satan himself. And so Beelzebul was literally... Uh, a contemptible uh, title that the Jews gave to Satan. So here's the spin. Here's how it works. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't believe that that what this man Jesus just did was empowered by God. You know, he is not the Messiah, the son of David, like some of you are saying. In fact, this man casts out demons by the power of Satan, Beelzebul, the, the ruler of the demons. Now, dear friends, let me give you a practical consideration for a moment. You must beware of the spin of the hypocrite. Because their distortions are always crafted by the father of lies, the great counterfeiter, the one who disguises himself as an angel of light. We must understand that hypocrisy is not only deceptive, but it is conceived by Satan in the womb of jealousy and, and selfish ambition. In fact, in James 3, beginning in verse 14, we are reminded of this very fact. There we read, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Which means the truth referring to the truth of how we need to be selfless and humble and so on. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. And certainly demons are the source of all false wisdom. And he goes on to say, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Indeed, jealousy and selfish ambition and the hypocrisy that is spawned out of that Destroys everything from families to governments, from churches to empires. The distortion of the truth is a formidable adversary for all who love to proclaim it and to live consistently with it. And we see that in this text. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. By the way, if I can digress for a moment. I've noticed this as I look through scripture and even in my own experience in life that there seems to be three unique stages that occur that kind of cycle around when you look at the distortion of truth. You have spin and then you have the word malign and then you have the word exalt. Spin, malign, exalt. Then spin some more, malign, exalt. Spin, malign, exalt. That's how it works. Let me explain it to you. First of all, you've got to spin the truth. You've got to distort it. You've got to take a partial truth and twist it. You have to torture maybe something that was true and make it into a half truth in order to get somebody to believe something that isn't anywhere related to what is really the truth. That's the spin. Clever attorneys make their living doing this. As well as politicians. Just watch the upcoming presidential debates and you'll see it occur before your very eyes. You know how it works. Quote a person out of context. 
Take just a sound bite of something they said, but leave out all the rest and then use that to your advantage. And in this context, what they did is, oh, yes, Jesus performed a miracle. And, and, and yes, on appearance, it's a wonderful thing that that this poor man is no longer afflicted. But and here comes the spin. But he was not empowered by God, but by Satan. Well, after the spin, then comes malign. You know how that works. Now, what you must do is attack the character of your opponent. You must slander him. You must discredit him. Sling a little mud. Dig up some dirt. Scandalize the individual. Again, you see this in the presidential race. You see this, for example, uh, with the phony documents that CBS attempted to use to or did use to discredit President Bush's service record of some 30 years ago. I've experienced this myself. I always I always dread it when I'm asked to come in as an expert witness especially in like a marital dispute or something like that, because I know what's going to happen. The opposing attorney is going to do everything he or she can possibly do to discredit me. They will do everything they can to humiliate me and to dig up anything they possibly can about my background as some religious fanatic, as some preacher who doesn't really understand any of these things to somehow discredit me and therefore win their case. By the way, it's interesting that judges usually don't fall for it, but I always have to go through it. But that's the maligning. That's what happens. Vilify your opponent. Smear your accuser. Destroy their credibility. And certainly as a pastor, I've gotten used to this. And you must remember, hypocrites who will be filled with jealousy and selfish ambition are character assassins. And that's what we have. Here with the Pharisees, but it doesn't stop there. You've got the spin then you've got the maligning. But then the third phase is exalting yourself. You see, naturally, assuming the role of religious expert, the hypocrite, in this case, the Pharisees now is in, in fact saying, you know, Jesus is phony, but by implication and certainly by default, we are the real deal. He's bad. We're good. So just beware of that cycle. Spin, malign, and exalt. But notice the divine response to the diabolical spin as this drama continues to unfold. We see next the devastating rebuttal in verses 25 and 26. Before we go there, may I remind you, there's a, there's a great text in Proverbs 16, verses 4 and 5. You don't need to turn there. Let me remind you of it. It says there, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, what God is telling us there, don't agree with unbelievers and their warped ideologies. Don't even remain silent when they spout off some unbiblical uh, philosophy and, and certain presuppositions, when they do the spin, malign, exalt, deal, whatever. Don't do that. Instead, answer a fool as his folly deserves, as the text says. In other words, expose his ideological idiocy by showing him the truth of divine revelation, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I like to think of it this way, spit in his soup. He may continue to eat it, but it will never taste as good as it once did. Give him the truth. And certainly this is what Jesus is about to do in his devastating rebuttal. 
beginning in verse 25, he says, and knowing their thoughts, in other words, knowing the distortion of their truth, of the truth and their maligning and their exalting and so on. He said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. And how then shall his kingdom stand? In other words, he's saying your clever and diabolical spin is logically ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. It is utterly absurd to assume that a kingdom would consciously destroy itself. In the first part of verse 27, he says, and if I be Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, having seen their their desperate control of the masses, now Jesus has endured their, their distortions, their spin, their maligning. And now, as they are trying to exalt themselves, he's going to rebut them. And he's saying, you know, let's do a little comparison here. As you try to exalt yourself, you condemn me and exalt yourself. You think that you're the real deal? Let's think about this for a second. What about your sons who cast out demons? Now, it's important for you to understand the term sons that is used here was a common epithet used to describe close followers or disciples, or we might use the term protege of someone else. And certainly this was a reference to the many exorcists that the sons of the Pharisees of, of the sons of the Pharisees who used a variety of formulas and bizarre incantations to presumably exercise demons to cast them out. For example, there was a man in that first century, a man by the name of Rabbi Johanan ben Zakkai, who uh, Josephus speaks of, the famous uh, Jewish historian. And he had a technique for expelling demons. And here's what he said, just to give you an example of this, quote, take roots of herbs, burn them under the possessed person and surround him with water, whereupon the spirit will flee. End quote. And there were many other silly things that they did, even exorcists in that day. They many of them used various occultic practices like they would take they would take clay or wax and fashion it into uh, what they thought the, the likeness of that demon might be, or perhaps even the sorcerer that had that had uh, somehow cast the spell on a particular person. And then after some recitation of various uh, formulas, uh, they would smash the image and just utterly destroy it and think that therefore they had taken care of the demon. It's very similar to voodoo, that type of thing. So Jesus is saying, OK, you're going to exalt yourself here. Let me ask you, by whose power do your contemporaries cast out demons? Your sons, Satan's power or God's power? Now, think about this. If they answer by Satan's power, they destroy their own credibility, right? They shoot themselves in the foot. But if they answer, well, it's by God's power, then they destroy their accusation against Jesus because Jesus will say, well, so too is mine. So either way they answer, they end up vindicating Jesus. By the way, when you study the rebuttals of Jesus against the Pharisees, he did this routinely. And these guys were just completely outmatched, obviously, by the infinite mind of the omniscient Christ. 
But he continues with his devastating rebuttal in verses 28 and 30. He says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, I am the son of David, even as the crowds are suggesting the Messiah who was predicted, for example, in Isaiah 29 verses 18 and 19. And there we read. Prophetically speaking of the time that we see now with Jesus and on that day, the deaf shall hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see the afflicted also shall increase their gladness in the Lord and the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. In other words, Jesus would be saying. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then indeed the kingdom of God has come. You know what the prophecies say about the coming kingdom. And you've seen it before you, even this day. Likewise, in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, the prophet tells us, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. These are the types of things that were prophesied when the kingdom would come upon them. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 29. He says, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? In other words, again, he's saying, you you foolish hypocrites, can't you see that I am the one that is binding Satan and plundering his house? Can't you see that because of Satan and sin, people are in the very clutches of this bondage? And I have publicly and consistently delivered people from the effects of his wicked house. I am binding him and I am plundering his house. I have healed the sick. I have raised the dead. I've cast out demons. I've forgiven sins. And you have the audacity to accuse me of being an emissary of Satan. Well, with this comes the fourth division of this narrative. And here is the damning accusation. Verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, folks, here I can imagine Jesus turning even more to the crowd that had gathered around. Again, keep in mind, the crowd is watching this whole drama unfold. They're confused. They're afraid. They've been amazed at what they've seen. Undoubtedly, their hearts would be racing with anxiety. And they're saying, am I standing in the presence of the son of David, the Holy One of Israel, God, very God? Or is this the most inconceivable, convincing hoax in recorded history? What is it? And Jesus turns to all of them and he says, You must either be with me or you're against me. Which will it be? Make up your mind. No doubt the people are saying, you know, if this is true, if I am to follow this Jesus, it could cost me everything. It could cost me my family, my job. I might even be barred from the synagogue. And certainly they were. And therefore, all source of social gatherings and all of the financial and economic benefits of being part of the community would be destroyed. 
am I going to follow him? Or on the other hand, if I don't follow him and he is who he says he is, it could cost me my very soul. Dear friends, please understand that Jesus is speaking to us as well, not just those people of that day. You see, he's saying, you don't have to necessarily oppose me publicly or privately, for that matter, even in your heart. If you do not trust me as Savior and you do not obey me as sovereign Lord and Master, you are against me. Dear friends, please listen. Even if you claim to be a Christian, even if you never miss a church service, even if you you've walked the aisle a dozen times to commit yourself to Christ, I don't care if you've been baptized a thousand times, if you have no sincere, passionate love for Christ and love for his word and love for his people and love for the lost, you are against him, regardless of your profession, regardless of your church affiliation. There's no middle ground. But Jesus's damning accusation doesn't stop there. In verses 31 and 32, he goes on to say, therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. And I've entitled this sermon, The Unforgivable Sin. And here's where we get to the very core of it. In order for you to understand it, you must understand the distinction between sin in general and the specific sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is a unique and unforgivable sin. Now, let me explain this to you. Certainly, God forgives the whole range of sins that man may commit, even certain forms of, of blasphemy in a general sense. Blasphemy just simply means insolent language or attitudes used against God. It's, it's defiant irreverence. You will recall that Peter blasphemed the Lord. He did so three times, didn't he? And he was forgiven. Paul even was forgiven, even though he admitted in 1 Timothy 1, in verses 13 and 14, that he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. But later on, he goes on to say that he was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. In fact, dear friends, all of us are guilty of blasphemy at times. You know, whenever we doubt the goodness and the love of God or the faithfulness of God, the sovereignty of God, we at some level blaspheme him. And yet sincere confession always results in merciful forgiveness. But Jesus continues here and he says, and whoever shall speak a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. In other words, there are going to be people who reject the deity of Christ, which is a form of blasphemy. You know, from Jesus day to our day, there are people that are ignorant of who Christ really was and is, and they don't recognize him for who he really was and who he really is. And with confession, the Lord will forgive that. But dear friends, please hear this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. And here's what that means. This is something altogether, altogether different. This is rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ 
having full knowledge of who he is. This is when someone consciously and deliberately chooses to reject Christ in the full light of divine revelation. This is when someone has a complete understanding of his deity. They have an understanding of their own sinfulness and how they have violated the law of God. And they see that the only way they can be reconciled to God is through Christ. And they have absolutely understood the undeniable, irrefutable evidence of the glorious person and the work of Jesus Christ. And they say, I don't want it. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You know, the hypocrites of that day in particular were eyewitnesses to the deity of Christ. They couldn't have missed it. They, they, they saw and many experienced his supernatural power, yet they willfully chose to reject him. They knew that the miracles were irrefutable demonstrations of the power of the Holy Spirit that had, had, that had empowered the God-man Jesus, the incarnate Christ, yet they refused to bow. Worse yet, they attributed the works of the Holy Spirit of God to Satan. Such blasphemy is irremediable. It is unforgivable. This is the wickedness, dear friends, of a calloused heart that has exchanged the truth for a lie, that has exchanged penitence with hardening, with humility, exchanging humility with defiant pride. You know, these rebellious Jews were frankly continuing the self-righteous hypocrisy that was previously the source of divine judgment in their lives in the past. They were condemned for this very same thing in Isaiah 5, just prior to the Babylonian judgment that God unleashed upon them. For example, we read in Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2, and actually this is a funeral dirge, a song of mourning that the Trinity is singing regarding the sinful, rebellious idolatry of the house of Israel. And they say, let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And certainly we know that when God called out his covenant people from Canaan or called them into Canaan, he brought them into out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and with honey. He did all of these incredible things for them. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill and he dug it all around, removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And even the genetics of the Jews is a noble strain. He gave them all that they needed. He put them in this glorious land. Goes on to say he built a tower in the middle of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. In the Hebrew, it produced only buhushim, sour, inedible berries that you'd have to spit out. God did everything possible to prove his glory before them and to simply ask them to humbly worship him. But they refused to do so. And Isaiah 5 goes on to talk about the judgment that he poured out upon them. Dear friends, the same kind of judgment that fell upon ancient Judah is now about to fall upon Israel, the covenant people once again. And for the same reason, defiant rebellion in the face of full knowledge and some 40 years from Jesus' damning accusation that we read about here came the judgment in A.D. 70. You will recall that the Romans utterly annihilated the Jews. 
just completely, I mean, slaughtered millions of them in the land. All throughout the land, they destroyed the temple. But you know, they had been warned. They had been warned by the prophets. They had been warned by Jesus and the apostles. They had been warned by the 70. They had been warned by other believers and other preachers in that day. And even soon after the Lord ascended back into heaven. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. In other words, what more was God supposed to do? And you're still going to reject him? Hebrews chapter six, beginning in verse four, we go on and, and, and here the text is speaking to unbelieving Jews who were familiar with the gospel of grace. But they weren't fully persuaded. They understood it, but they didn't quite want to embrace it. They wanted to fall back into their self-righteous legalism. And in that text, we read, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In other words, these defiant Jews, even after Jesus has spoken to them some years later, are rejecting the Lord Jesus in full revelation, with complete understanding of the truth, with all they knew of God's glorious deliverance of their ancestors. Not to mention the miraculous works that some of them no doubt had even experienced. There were undoubtedly people that had even been healed by Jesus that still refused to bow the knee to Christ. They were committed to their self-righteous system of salvation by works. Hypocrites to the end. And so Jesus finishes this section now by giving us the divine verdict. We've seen the desperate control and the diabolical distortion of the hypocrites. Then we've seen... Jesus' devastating rebuttal and damning accusation, and now the divine verdict, and it's simply this in verse 32. Whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, there is no forgiveness in this life on earth, nor in the eternal state. Oh, dear friends, may I plead with you to examine your heart. Is your heart one filled with hypocrisy? If it is, I plead with you to repent while there is still time, knowing full well that God hates pretenders. He, ad he abhors it. It is a stench into his nostrils. And if this is you, on the basis of the Word of God, I tell you that someday your masquerade will be revealed. Your mask will be ripped off. And he will read the secret diary of your iniquities and expose your sin. And then, dear friends, it will be too late. You will be exposed in the full light of his glorious holiness. And there will be no place to run, no place to hide. I close with these thoughts. The masquerade of godless men doth gain the cheers of some. 
with gaudy robes concealing sin, no need for sin to shun. With conscience seared in hearts of stone, they proudly strut around with secret sins they never own, concealed by self-made crowns. Even when the truth doth blare and Christ revealed in fire, enraged they scorn with nostrils flared and call the Lord a liar. Such blasphemy betrays the heart of one who will never know forgiveness, oh, and grace so great, no mercy will e'er be shown. Let's pray together. Father, these are sobering words for all of us and for those of us who by your grace have seen the light of the gospel of Christ, we rejoice. And yet, Lord, we confess that our hearts ache for those who remain incarcerated in the bondage of iniquity. Those who remain in the strong man's house. Lord, I pray that today will be the day that they see the need to rip off the mask, to quit pretending to confess their sin and run to the foot of the cross. Lord, that they might experience your grace and your mercy so rich and so free. And it's to this end that we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.